Hey, it's Gabe. I want to recommend a podcast I think you'll enjoy called What Could Go Right. On What Could Go Right, the hosts, Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva-Lucas, sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues. They look back at how far society has come and look forward to what it will take to achieve a brighter future. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, listen to What Could Go Right wherever you get your podcasts. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey guys, I hope you enjoy these classic episodes from the TDI-HC Vault. I'm currently researching a new crop of stories for next year, so be sure to join me on January 2nd when we return with all new episodes. Talk to you soon. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson, and I'd like to thank my colleague Holly Fry for filling in for me for the last seven episodes. Today is December 30th. The Iroquois Theater in Chicago caught fire on this day in 1903, killing at least 600 people. This theater was almost brand new. It had opened on November 23rd of that year. Performer Eddie Foy had described it as, quote, one of the finest that had yet been built in this country, a palace of marble and plate glass, plush and mahogany and gilding. On top of its beauty and magnificence, it was supposed to be fireproof. It had a capacity of 1,724, but on this particular afternoon, there were 1,900 people inside. It was standing room only, And most of the people in the audience were mothers and their children. It was the holiday season. They were taking family outings. And the second act of the show, at about 3.15 in the afternoon, one of the painted canvas backdrops brushed up against a reflector on a spotlight. Stage lights are incredibly hot. And this backdrop started to smolder. There was a stagehand who saw this happen and tried to put the fire out, but he just couldn't reach the backdrop from where he was. There was also an on-site firefighter, and he tried to put the fire out with two tubes of a product called Kill Fires. This was a tin tube, and what was inside was mostly baking soda. This probably would have done an okay job of putting out something like a grease fire on the stove in the kitchen, but on the vertical surface of an oil-painted backdrop, it just couldn't do the job, and the fire started to spread 
At first, no one in the audience or even on the stage was quite aware that anything was wrong because this fire was moving upward into the fly space above the stage. But then burning curtains and scenery started to fall onto the stage. Eddie Foy, who was on stage at the time, tried to keep the crowd calm, tried to get them to evacuate in an orderly fashion. But as he was talking, there were burning curtains falling at his feet. He yelled to the stage manager to drop the asbestos curtain. This was supposed to drop down between the stage and the audience in case of a fire, but it got snagged on a light fixture and it jammed partway down the track. Almost immediately, there was a huge panic in the audience and backstage. Actors and dancers opened the stage door to escape, and that let a blast of air into the theater. The vents that should have allowed this rush of air to go out through the roof were nailed shut. And there were also supposed to be fans that would pull air out through the roof, but those had never been finished. So the result was an enormous fireball. Foy stayed on the stage as long as he could, trying to maintain calm and to get people to exit safely, but he was finally forced to leave He was reunited with his son, who was with him that day, and who he had sent outside with a stagehand. Inside the theater, though, it was horrifying. It was dark. It was smoky. People couldn't find the exits. A lot of these exits, of which there were many, were hidden behind draperies, and many of them were locked. So many people were trampled to death trying to get to the exits. Some died after jumping out of windows, Even some of those who landed safely were then crushed by people falling on top of them. In just 15 minutes, the theater was a total loss. 575 people died that day out of the 1,900 people in the audience. So about 30% of the audience died, and nearly all the victims were women and children. There was only one performer who was killed. 30 more people died of their injuries in the following weeks, and hundreds more were injured. And it was a huge scandal. This was a supposedly fireproof building, but so many people had died. It wasn't ever really fireproof, though, and there were people who had pointed out problems long before the theater opened. The editor of Fireproof Magazine had pointed out lots of issues before the opening day, like that there was no draft to draw the fire up into the loft instead of allowing it to spread out into the audience, which is what happened. That's just one example The theater's manager and several Chicago public officials were indicted after the fire, but none of them were ever charged. The owner of the theater was charged and convicted, but that charge was later reversed. None of the victims' families ever received any kind of restitution apart from one class action suit, and the members each received $750. This horrible fire did lead to some changes in the fire code, including a requirement that doors in the theater need to open outward and be clearly marked You can learn more about this in the December 8th, 2014 episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class. Thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on this show. You can subscribe to This Day in History Class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can tune in tomorrow for a disappearance that's still unsolved. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. 
Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s, dance away with hip hop beats, and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Hey everyone, if I sound a lot cozier today, it's because I am. I'm at home for the holidays, but this is This Day in History class, which means you'll still get a new slice of history every day. So let's get on with the show. The day was December 30th, 1924. American astronomer Edwin Hubble announced the existence of galaxies beyond the Milky Way. Hubble graduated from the University of Chicago in 1910 with a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics and Astronomy. And in 1914, he went back to the University of Chicago to get his doctorate in astronomy. There, he began working at the Yerkes Observatory, where he studied nebulae, or anything that wasn't immediately identifiable as a star. He got his doctorate in 1917, but that same year, the U.S. entered World War I, and Hubble joined the Army. Once the war ended, he returned to astronomy. Astronomer George Hale, founder of the Yerkes Observatory and director of the Mount Wilson Observatory, had offered Hubble a job at Mount Wilson before he went off to war. In 1919, Hubble took a staff position at Mount Wilson Observatory near Pasadena, California. There, he worked with the 100-inch Hooker Telescope, which was then the largest in the world. He stayed at the observatory for his whole career. At Mount Wilson, Hubble continued studying nebulae. At this time, scientists thought the Milky Way made up the entire universe, and spiral nebulae were thought to be clouds of gas or dust within the Milky Way. But in 1912, astronomer Henrietta Leavitt showed how to use Cepheids, or stars that brighten and dim periodically, to estimate their distance from Earth. And some astronomers did believe that the nebulae were distant island universes that were separate from the Milky Way. Starting in 1923, Hubble identified Cepheid variable stars in what was then known as the Andromeda Nebula. Based on their brightness, luminosity, and the distances of Cepheid stars in the Milky Way, Hubble determined that the stars were at least 800,000 light-years away. That meant that they were beyond the boundaries of the Milky Way, which had a maximum diameter of about 100,000 light-years. 
This discovery also revealed that nebulae are different star systems and that the universe extends past the reaches of the Milky Way. He called these galaxies extragalactic nebulae. By the end of 1924, other astronomers were aware of Hubble's findings. On December 30, 1924, he published his observations for review at a meeting of the American Astronomical Society that would take place two days later. Other astronomers accepted Hubble's conclusions pretty quickly. Hubble went on to find and describe more galaxies, dividing them into the categories of regular or irregular, and the regular ones as spiral or elliptical based on their shape. And he made many other significant contributions to cosmology. In 1929, Hubble combined his work with that of astronomer Vesto Slipher and his assistant Milton Hummison, and he found an essentially linear relationship between the distances of galaxies and their radial velocities. That concept came to be known as Hubble's Law. Put simply, it says that the farther apart galaxies are, the faster they move away from each other. Hubble's findings helped lead to the notion of the expanding universe. His work had big implications. Due in part to his observations, debate intensified around the idea of the Big Bang, or the universe's earliest expansion. Some said that the universe expanded from a single point at its origin, while others said that the universe exists in a steady state. The Hubble Space Telescope, launched by NASA in 1990, is named after him. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you want to hit us up on social media, you can do so at Podcast, or you can just email us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that shines a light on the ups and downs of everyday history. 
I'm Gabe Lussier, and today, we're celebrating a milestone in avian history. The day when coal mine canaries were finally put out of a job. The day was December 30th, 1986. A British mining tradition came to an end when legislation officially ordered that all live canaries be released from the nation's coal mines. At the time, only about 200 canaries were still in use in Britain's mines, a steep decline from decades earlier. The government order gave miners about a year to bid farewell to the birds and make the switch to new digital detectors, something the government referred to as the electronic nose. As you're probably aware, coal mining is extremely dangerous work. Miners face threats like cave-ins, fires, and explosions on a daily basis. But the most insidious danger comes from noxious gases, especially carbon monoxide. When a human breathes in carbon monoxide, the gas replaces oxygen molecules in the bloodstream, and as a result, organs and tissues are supplied with poison instead of oxygen. Acute carbon monoxide poisoning causes a headache, dizziness, and shortness of breath, but as the gas accumulates, it can quickly prove fatal. Carbon monoxide is released through the burning of wood and coal, so clouds of the gas can form easily in the enclosed space of a mine, and since it's completely odorless and colorless, miners typically wouldn't notice the gas until it was too late. That is where the canaries came in. Starting as far back as the 1890s, British miners would descend into the mine, carrying one of the small yellow songbirds in a cage. If the canaries stopped singing, or showed any sign of distress while the miners worked, they took it as a signal that something in the air was unsafe, and that they should evacuate the pit immediately. This crude but effective method of detecting the presence of carbon monoxide was employed for nearly a century. It started on the advice of Scottish scientist John Haldane. He investigated the properties of many different gases, including their effects on the human body. His research into the effects of carbon monoxide poisoning led him to suggest the use of small animals for detecting the gas in underground mining operations. Haldane noted that white mice would work well because their fast metabolism would cause them to show the effects of poisoning before the gas impacted human workers, thus giving them enough time to escape. However, Haldane noted that canaries were even better suited for the task. Like other birds, canaries require large amounts of oxygen in order to fly. To meet this need, their respiratory systems work in a way that allows them to get a dose of air not just as they inhale, but as they exhale, too. That means that, compared to a mouse, a canary will breathe in twice as much air in the same amount of time. And if the air is poisoned, the canary would show the effects twice as quickly. England wasn't the only country to follow Haldane's advice. The U.S. and Canada both used canaries for the same purpose starting at the turn of the 20th century. The practice was popular not just because it was effective, but because it boosted morale, too. 
many miners came to regard their feathered co-workers as protective pets, bright, chipper companions who guarded their masters in the way a dog might. In the dreary conditions of a coal mine, the happy singing of a songbird was a welcome sign that all was well. It's only fitting, then, that the miners came up with ways to repay the favor and protect the canaries right back. For example, in 1896, a device was created to help resuscitate coal mine canaries. When one of the birds lost consciousness due to carbon monoxide, the door of the circular cage would be sealed, and a valve would be opened, allowing fresh oxygen from a tank to fill the enclosure and revive the canary. Typically, this would be done first thing after a mining accident, and only afterward would the miners evacuate the area. Still, clever gadgets aside, the practice was inhumane. By 1986, there were better, cheaper, and more effective options. The new electronic gas detectors were handheld, even more portable than a canary in a cage. Plus, they gave digital readouts of gas levels on a screen in real time. Still, the digital detectors weren't as comforting or as cheerful as the canaries had been. According to the BBC, quote, The birds are so ingrained in the culture that miners report whistling to the birds and coaxing them as they worked, treating them as pets. The 1986 report went on to say that although the miners were deeply saddened by the decision to phase out the canaries, they wouldn't fight the change. In a parting show of care, the miners recognized that the birds would be better off without them. These days, the biggest reminder of the canary's role in mining is the overused phrase, a canary in a coal mine, which is a metaphor used to describe something as an early indicator of potential danger. It's hard to believe the practice alluded to in the cliché was only discontinued in the mid-1980s. But on the other hand, canaries weren't even the last animals to retire from the mining industry. Horses and mules, nicknamed pit ponies, were used to haul up coal from underground mines until 1999, at which point they were finally replaced by machines as well. Today, phrases like coal mine canaries and pit ponies seem antiquated, and many would assume they refer to much older practices than they really do. They may not be the practical terms they once were, but they're still important reminders of an even harsher world of coal mining. One that, thankfully, no longer exists. I'm Gabe Lussier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can write to us, too, at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.